You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Today we're going to continue in our series, uh, Simply Pray, and I want to speak to you on the topic uh, that is Simply Pray in Humility from James chapter 4, 1 through 10. You can open your Bibles to that in just a minute. Uh, Stay with me for a second, though. Don't take a seat. Um, See, all of Scripture is brought to life by the Holy Spirit, enlightening the need of the believer, showing us the truth that we need in order to walk in righteousness. And so as we've come seeking the Lord and his presence in song this morning, certainly we don't stop seeking his presence when we stop singing. But even as we open God's word this morning, we are seeking the presence of Jesus here today. And uh, because of the great weight that I feel in this passage and that you will feel in this passage, uh, I believe that we need to very sensitively enter into God's word this morning, that we need to not rush past uh, what we've already done in seeking his Holy Spirit, seeking his presence. We need him to speak. Without him, all of this is a waste of time. Without him, we are nothing. And yet it'd be very easy to kind of steamroll through this passage that you've probably heard before from James chapter four, and yet I believe that God wants us to dig deep into it, uh, to have a posture of seeking his presence as we gain his truth. And so I'm going to read the passage over us. And would you just seek the Lord in your mind as you hear it? You can follow along if you want. But James chapter four, one through 10 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I wonder if you would open your hands with me to the Lord as if to say, God, I'm giving up control this morning. Whatever I've brought with me, whatever I've carried into this room, I'm letting go and I'm desiring you to speak. And let's go to him in that posture in prayer as we begin this morning. Father God, we come and Lord, we acknowledge our great need for you. And Lord, we thank you that you invite us to seek your presence while it may be found. And Lord, we thank you that you are God gracious and faithful. And God, that you would show up in our midst here at Harvest this morning. God, we thank you for the way that you encourage us 
and that you gladden our souls through the singing of your truths. But Lord, would you continue to be gracious to us and would you speak this morning through your holy word? God, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see our need for you? God, we love you and we give you the glory and we know that apart from you, we are nothing. And so God, humbly we ask that you would come, that you would enlighten your word, that you would convict us and shape us and mold us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And let's continue to seek his presence together this morning. You can open your Bibles to John 4, 1 through 10 with me. And uh, obviously we want to follow along together. But we're going after a big idea today as we enter into the word of God. The big idea that we're going after is this. My selfishness keeps me from approaching God's throne. My selfishness keeps me from approaching God's throne. And if you're taking notes, point number one today is going to be this. My sinful desires silence simple prayer. My sinful desires silence simple prayer. So follow along with me in James chapter four, starting in verse one. Uh, James writes this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's a great question for us today. Uh, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Anybody here ever have quarrels and fights going on, maybe in your home, uh, maybe uh, at your workplace, uh, maybe with the people that you run up against? Anybody? See, James is writing to a group of people in the church who are having some trouble. Uh, in this church, there were uh, believers and followers of Jesus, and there were unbelievers in this church. And James is writing to them, and he's asking them, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And these people were having a problem because they were getting uh, their eyes off of God and onto the things of this world, onto their own selfish desires. And rather than dealing maturely with these things, rather than taking these things to God, they were taking it into their own hands. And they were allowing the passions of their flesh uh, to manifest itself in their outward actions towards one another. Can you relate with that this morning? Do you ever have some desires in your heart that manifest themselves outwardly in a sinful way? Here's some uh, things that I wrote down. See if, if you can relate. I just want my kids to listen when I speak. I just want my husband to notice all that I do. I wish my wife would give me more respect when I come home from work at a long, after a long day. I just want my dad to understand my point of view, right, teenagers? I just wish I had a fraction of their perfect life. Man, I should be the one in that position at work. I'm so much more capable. I'm so much more qualified. Listen, all of these desires, all of these things aren't necessarily sinful desires, but very quickly they be can become negatively selfish desires that radically affect the way we go about pursuing them. And James, he gives us kind of the root problem. He says, is it not because your passions are at war within you? 
All of us have desires, and whenever we begin to allow those desires to wage war within our souls, to wage war within our hearts, we start to not care about what's around us. We start to not care about what God may think. We start to take things into our own hands, and before long, we're like the people in this church that James is writing to, quarreling and fighting among one another. So I want to give you three reasons, uh, three ways that my desires silence simple prayer as we unpack this truth this morning. Three ways my desires silence simple prayer. The first one is this, I do not pray. I do not pray. Follow along with me in verse two of chapter four. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Listen, all human desire is not inherently evil. Um, I believe that there is holy, righteous desire, but holy, righteous desire expresses itself in fervent, persistent prayer. But James here, he's addressing an entirely different kind of desire. See, these people's desires seem to be developing in contention, right? They're fighting and they're quarreling and they're killing for their own desires. I don't think they were necessarily literally murdering people, but we know from the Bible that even if we have hate in our heart towards somebody, right, that it's as if we've murdered them. And these people were allowing those passions and those things to get the best of them. And it doesn't even occur to them to go to God and ask for help or provision or blessing or need because they've fallen into the, the lie of believing that they are self-sufficient, that they don't need God and so they can take it into their own hands. How prideful can we be, right? These people in the church became so self-focused on their own passions that they were becoming self-reliant when it came to the provision that they were seeking. They were so focused on fighting for what they wanted that it didn't even occur to them to ask God for help. I don't know if there could be a better illustration for us uh, than my son Blaze uh, with a piece of Starburst candy. So you see my son Blaze there. He's a cute little guy. Uh, but on, on a, a Sunday after the Harvest Fall Festival, we get home and my daughters are dumping out all their candy and they're organizing their candy. And it's a joyful occasion. And I'm looking around. I don't know where Blaze is at. And I hear, <laughs> and I look over in the corner and uh, there's Blaze with his jaw jutted out and he's grunting and obviously a passion is waging war in his soul. And as I see him trying to open this little piece of Starburst candy with his stubby little fingers, he can't get to what his desire is most, right? And so he's grunting and, and his passions are causing a quarrel in his heart and it doesn't even, he, he, you know, I say, hey, Blaze, uh, can I help you, buddy? Can I help you with that? And he says, no, I do it myself. <laughs> and goes back to grunting. It didn't even occur to him that all he had to do was say, Daddy, can you help me out with this? And I would have been glad to help him if he hadn't already had too many candies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but to ask is seriously one of the most simple things that we could ever do, and yet it's often the last thing that we do when it comes to our passions and desires that we tend to get focused on, Right? May we not be so focused on uh, the desires of our flesh that we forget to just simply go to God and ask. All of us 
would gladly help somebody who would ask us for help. We would be very quick if somebody came up to you and said, hey, can you help me out? We would be pretty quick to help people. And yet often it's the last thing that we do. Our selfish desires can cause us to simply not pray. But there's a second thing. Our selfish desires. Uh, I pray for selfish gain. The second way that uh, sinful desires, silent, simple prayers that I pray for selfish gain. Let's read in uh, verse, chapter four, verse three. You ask and do not receive. I thought all I had to do was ask and I would receive. Keep reading. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think it's interesting that in those first three verses of James chapter four, you see the word you and your 11 times. Your passions, to spend on your passions, you ask and you do not receive and you, 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 right? It reminds me of that country song, I wanna talk about me, I wanna talk about I, I wanna talk about number one, me, my, oh my, what I think, what I want, what I like, what I want, what I see, right? I hate country. <laughs> but here's a good statement for you this morning. Here's a good statement for you this morning. If I am the center of my prayer life, then I have a prayer problem. If I am the center of my prayer life, then I have a prayer problem. And these people were all about themselves whenever they tried to go before God in prayer. It says that they asked wrongly. These people wanted God's blessing over their own passions, not for the glory of God. And so what is it? What passions is he talking about this morning? Um, I think it's lustful desires, sensual gratification, personal pleasure, whether it comes to money, sex, possessions, health, prosperity, you name it. Uh, the list could go on and on, but it forces us to ask the question this morning, what are we asking God for that has more to do with our selfish gain than his great glory? There's a way to ask God for things. Uh, he invites it, but it's never for our own selfish gain. Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says, all of heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. God gives more than we ask. And so why so often do we either not pray or do we try to get what we want on our own strength and end up going to God for our own selfish gain? See, prayers that are pleasing to God are prayers consistent with his word and consistent with his kingdom purposes. Pleasure's not wrong, but only pleasure with God's glory as the aim is worthy of our prayers. So our sinful desires, they cause us not to pray. They cause us to pray for selfish gain. The third thing is this. I am a friend of the world. If you're trying to be a friend of the world, it's going to radically affect your prayer life. It's going to silence your simple prayers. Let's read in verse four. He says, you adulterous people, exclamation point. James is using some language now. You adulterous people, he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
So when James says, you adulterous people, uh, he's using language that this culture would be familiar with. The Old Testament often referred to Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant relationship that it had with God. Uh, The Old Testament often uses the language of adulterous people. I looked up a lot of these passages in the Old Testament referring to Israel's unfaithfulness. And let me just say, it uses some pretty harsh language. Uh, It doesn't use the kindest of words to describe uh, Israel's unfaithfulness and trying to get what they want or trying to use God for their own selfish gain. And yet here, James compares the one who prays for selfish gain to the husband or wife who vowed before God to have and to hold on their wedding day and then went and found someone else for pleasure when they weren't satisfied. You catch that? All of us can sympathize with You know, the couple that got married and they had a beautiful wedding and they stood before God and they honored God and they vowed to have and to hold from this time forth and forevermore. And before too long, an unfaithful spouse started disappearing, uh, started not having truths that lined up. And before long, you hear of an affair that happens. All of us can sympathize with the faithful spouse in that relationship. How could such a thing happen? Why would they do that? All of us can sympathize with that. And yet James is trying to paint a picture that you and I are the unfaithful spouse and God is the faithful spouse in the relationship whenever we try to pray for our own selfish gain, whenever we try to hold on tightly to the things of this world. We are the one who is only seeking to fulfill our own lustful desires and passions of the flesh because What we have is not good enough for us. May it not be so of our relationship with God. And here's the truth. The expectations of people like this will never be satisfied because their heart is set on the world. That's what James is trying to say here. You can't serve two masters. See, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. And yet I think... There's maybe three kinds of people here today. I think there's friends of God here. We're worshiping together. We're receiving from the spirit of God together. Uh, We're being shaped and molded and transformed into the likeness of Christ here together. Uh, If the truth be told, I believe that there are some enemies of God here in our church today. Those who are trying to receive from God without surrendering to his lordship. Uh, Those who are trying to gain without giving God any glory. There's a third kind of person, I think. I think there are friends of God here today who are trying to keep one foot in the world. People here today who are towing a very thin line between worldliness and godliness, between darkness and light. I think there are people here who have said, you know, I want to follow Jesus and I'm giving my life over to him and I've I've surrendered to him. But man, some of these things just satisfy my flesh so much. Some of these things are so worthy of my time. Some of these things provide such great relief for me. Uh, I got to hold on. I can't I can't let go of those things yet. And so I'll just kind of avoid those things until they pop up and I'll deal with them on a on a simple basis. Look, I can't be the Holy Spirit in your life here today, only he can bring proper conviction to your thought life or entertainment choices or how you find joy or fun or stress relief. Um, But I can promise you this, 
Uh, a friend of God is most concerned with what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whatever you eat or drink, whatever you say or do, you do it all to the glory of God. Our life is not about us. Our prayer life cannot be about us. The things that we go to God for should not be about us, but everything should be done to the glory of God. And that should greatly inform the way uh, that you turn your back on the world. Don't look back and follow Jesus, right? You can't simply pray if you're an enemy of God, uh, but your simple prayer will quickly become a selfish prayer if you're trying to be a friend of the world. And so I'd say for everyone in the room today, we probably all think, man, I'm such a selfish person. I think about myself way too much. Why would I, why, maybe I should never try praying because in my nature, I'm just a selfish person. Well, you shouldn't stop praying. There's hope for us even in this passage today. Leads us to point number two this morning. Point number two is this, God yearns for my simple prayer. God yearns for my simple prayer. We're going after two things under this point. The first is this, God longs to be in communion with me. God longs to be in communion with me. Isn't that encouraging to you today? Let's read in verse five together. Uh, chapter four, verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in you and I. Uh, there's kind of competing um, thoughts on exactly what James is referring to, what scripture he's referring to. I think that uh, he's less referring to a specific passage and more the whole Bible regarding the soul of the human being. But the main point that James is trying to make even for us this morning is this. Um, God wants to communicate with you. God wants to communicate with you so much so that he's actually offended when you try to get your own selfish gain out of it or when you try to be a friend of the world. It offends God because he so longs to communicate with you, his creation. Uh, jealousy for us, right, typically manifests itself in sin when it comes out of our lives. Well, we know that God cannot sin and so God, with a holy jealousy, covets time with those that he has created in his image. The God of the universe, he has a pure heavenly desire to hear from you, to listen to you, to quiet you, to be gracious to you. And at the end of the day, that's really the point of prayer, right? See, prayer is not about us getting everything that we ask for. It's not even about telling God everything that's on our hearts or on our minds. The goal of prayer is communion with the living God. Isn't that encouraging to you today that despite your selfishness, despite your ability to put your hope in your own strength, uh, God longs to communicate with you so much that he's jealous for it, right? That's the hope of the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the fact is God created you and I in his image so that we could have a relationship with him. And when Adam and Eve started thinking about what they wanted or what they didn't have or what God had provided, and he had provided an entire world for them, but when it wasn't good enough, they went after the passions and lusts of their own flesh, right? You and I would have done the same thing. 
And when they chose the apple over God's gracious goodness, they were separated from God. You and I came into this world separated from God. But the beauty today is this, God doesn't need us, but God loves us, right? God doesn't need us, but he loves us so much so that he gave us Jesus Christ to be the way and the truth and the life. And it's through Jesus Christ that we can come back to the Father knowing that we can have a relationship again with the God of the universe. It's through Jesus Christ that our spirit can become God's spirit. It's through Jesus Christ that we can know that God is our father, a good father, perfect in all of his ways, and he invites us to come and to ask anything of him according to his will. He takes our measly little prayer, Jesus, and he offers it holy and acceptable to the God of the universe. God longs jealously for your simple prayer. Isn't that encouraging to you today? It so encourages me. And yet there's more. God gives grace for me to submit to him. God gives grace for me to submit to him. Read in verse six. But he gives more grace. When I go through that last verse about how God longs jealously to spend time with me, that's enough, right? Like, that's plenty. Why would God care about what I think? Why would God desire time with me? That's, that's an honor. That encourages me plenty. But look, I love what God does in his word. Look what he says in verse six. God gives more grace. Somebody say amen if you're thankful for more grace this morning, right? I am so thankful that God gives more grace. He gives so much more than we could ever ask or think or imagine. He gives grace upon grace upon grace. And what does he give us grace to do? Keep reading, it says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We'll talk about the grace that he gives to the humble in a minute, but we gotta talk about opposition, okay? We've already talked about the prideful man. The prideful man doesn't see a need to pray, right? Because they're so focused on getting what they want that they don't even ask or they go to God for selfish gain or they hold on to the things of the world. God opposes the prideful man. Here's what opposition is. To oppose is to actively resist, to refuse to comply with, to compete against or attempt to prevent. Doesn't sound like a very good thing when it comes to God and man, right? I don't want God opposing me. I don't want God actively resisting me. Here's an illustration for you, all right? I'm getting down in a football stance, all right? I'm, I'm here. As intimidating as this looks to all of you. <laughs> I'm in a football stance, and my one goal, my one desire is to tackle Notre Dame uh, running back Mr. Josh Adams as he comes down the middle, all right? The only thing that stands between me and Mr. Josh Adams is the Notre Dame offensive line led by All-American number 68, Mike McGlinchey, standing six foot nine feet tall, uh, weighing 315 pounds. That's opposition, right? As impressed as you may have been with my Popeye costume, I can guarantee you this. Uh, that guy stands uh, four times my height and double my weight. 
he's going to supply some pretty great opposition to me, right? He's going to render me pretty much useless in what I'm trying to get to. And as good of an illustration as that is this morning, uh, greater is the opposition that stands between the prideful man and the God of the universe. Even greater. How useless we would be if we tried to go up against God based on our own human pride. God opposes the proud. But what's it say? He gives grace to the humble. I keep a definition in my phone that I found about three years ago. It's by David Brooks. He's a writer in the New York Times. I don't know if David Brooks is a Christian, a follower of Jesus, um, but he writes this. Just listen to this statement. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but it's thinking accurately of yourself. It's an adequate view of your own nature that you are not equipped to perform the tasks that God has asked you to do. Isn't that a great definition? That we would think accurately of ourselves, that we wouldn't think we have anything to offer, that we could accomplish it on our own. And so it forces us to ask, who are the humble here today? Those who aren't too proud to admit their need for help. Uh, those who aren't too successful to take their eyes off of their accomplishment and give the glory to God. Those who aren't ashamed to admit that they don't have it all together or that their life isn't as perfect as it looks on social media or that sometimes they just simply fail to live as Christ has called us to live. Are you willing to admit that this morning? See, God has grace for those who haven't arrived and are willing to admit it. Are you willing to admit that you need some help, that you haven't arrived, that you fall so short of God's glory? And what does he give us grace for? Keep reading in verse seven. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, to submit is to give up control, to say, I follow you, I obey you, I, I, I trust you, I'm giving up control. And for human beings, we like to be in control, right? That's often where the battle lies. That's where it gets hard. It says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Isn't that awesome grace? The fact that God gives us the grace so that we can be humble, admit our need for him, and so we give up control by submitting to him, and then we begin to resist the devil and the things of this world. See, the devil, Satan's desire is that you and I would be the adulterer in our relationship with God. Satan loves that picture that James painted earlier in the passage. He loves the idea that you and I would go to God for selfish gain. Satan loves the idea that you and I wouldn't need God, so we would just try to get whatever we want based on our own accord. Satan loves the idea that we would be a friend of the world, and his desire is that you and I would use God for our own selfish gain rather than have meaningful communion with Jesus Christ. But only the humble can receive the grace to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Only the humble, only those who are willing to admit their need can resist the devil and all that he gives. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he would devour. And yet, just as God opposes the proud, the devil will run away from us if we would just simply resist him in the strength that God provides. Lord, give us the strength 
to give up control, to submit to your leadership and to resist the devil and all that he has. So how does humility form our submission this morning? And here's even a better question. How does the grace of God give, uh, how does the grace that God gives to the humble form even our prayer life today? Point number three is this, my simple prayer must be rooted in humble repentance. My simple prayer must be rooted in humble repentance. Martin Luther said this, God wants us to pray and he wants to hear our prayers, not because we are worthy, but because he is merciful. Don't you love that understanding, that posture? And yet how often we forget that we don't have anything to offer to the holy God of the universe. He invites us based on his mercy, not our worthiness. God forbid that we go to him as puffed up people. So in humility, I draw near to God. In humility, I draw near to God. We read together in verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think that praying itself is an act of humility. When we pray the right way, uh, it's as if we go to God and we offer uh, praise to him and confession to him and our asks and we yield to him. Prayer is an act of humility, but do we really grasp just how merciful God is in allowing us to approach his throne? Do you think about that? The God of the universe invites us to come close to him, to ask anything of him that's in accordance with his word. The Bible says boldly approach the throne of God and yet the examples that I see in scripture sometimes intimidate me when I try to think about going boldly before God's throne, right? You think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six and he stands before God and God speaks and thunder and lightning and smoke fill the room and his, the train of his, his robe fills the room and uh, the angels are flying around with tons of wings covering their faces and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and all Isaiah can say is, whoa. <laughs> He's like, woe is me. And then he says, I am unclean. Like, he's so dumbfounded by the greatness and the majesty and the wonder of God that surrounds his throne. And then in the holiness of God, everything that he ever did wrong comes flashing before his eyes. Sounds terrifying. Think about John. He goes before the throne room of Jesus and there's beings of fire and God's lifted up as the lamb who was slain and John's so freaked out, he falls on the ground and starts worshiping an angel and the angel's like, dude, you think I'm crazy? Check that out. <laughs> the angel points him to the God of the universe and we're called to boldly approach that throne with our prayers, with our supplication. Have you ever thought about the majesty that surrounds God and the wonderful, beautiful, intimate invite that he gives to us, the child of God, to boldly approach his throne and ask? We easily fall into the habit of flippantly approaching God, but in reality, drawing near to God should create such a humble posture in our hearts. God is other and he is holy and he is glorious. 
May we never go to him thinking anything less. Do you notice what it says in verse eight? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It just keeps getting better, right? Isn't it enough that God would invite me to draw near to him and yet what grace he gives to say, not only if you approach me, but I will come to you where you are. I'll come to you all who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. If you draw near to me, if you seek, you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Come to me and I will come to you. Even right now, this should be creating a sense of humility in your own heart. That the God of the universe would care to spend time with you. That he's intimately and intricately involved with the deepest facets of your heart and your desires and he longs for communion with you I think of the psalmist in Psalm 8 who writes what is man that you are mindful of him why would God even think of me and yet he does in his grace right so in humility I draw near to God but then in humility I repent In humility, I repent. Let's read together the rest of verse eight. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sinners and double-minded are the two people, the same people that he's talking to. Obviously, we are all sinners. Double-minded are people who say one thing and do another. There's hypocrisy. And uh, he's writing to people in the church. Uh, There's probably some hypocrisy, some double-minded people here today. Sometimes I have double-mindedness in my own life. Um, But James here, he's associating the outward sins of the hands with the inward sins of the heart. You catch that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It makes me think of Uh, some of David's writings in the Old Testament. In Psalm 24, David said this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Anybody desire to stand in the holy place with the Lord today? Absolutely, right? Uh, Who can do it? He who has clean hands and pure hearts, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In us approaching God, we have to be ready to confess the sin of our hands, to confess the sin of our hearts. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 19. David writes, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Did you know that you can have hidden faults here in church this morning? Uh, That there's things deep within our hearts that maybe we've yet to confess to the Lord or maybe we're just compartmentalizing and shoving off into a deep, dark space because we don't want to deal with it. Or maybe there's things that we're holding on to or maybe there's some things that we don't even know about ourselves that in the light of God's holiness would appear as sinful, dirty rags. David says, praise, declare me innocent from hidden faults And he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are the sins that we know are wrong and we do them anyways. The things that we know would not bring glory to God and yet we follow through with them. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When was the last time 
that your prayer looked like David's prayer. The point is the sin of the hands, the sin of the heart, it covers it for all of us. We all fall so short of his glory and in drawing near to the God of the universe, in drawing near to God, we have to be prepared for the light of his holiness to bring about the sin and the darkness of our own heart. We have to lay down the sin of our hands that we commit on a regular basis before approaching God in utter humility. We must approach him in humble repentance. Keep reading in verse nine. He writes, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to gloom Sorry, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Uh, that's probably nobody's life verse here this morning. It's pretty depressing. But listen, what's he trying to say there? There's a vital, um, or I'm sorry, uh, what, what I think James is trying to say is when was the last time that you mourned over your sin? When was the last time that you wept over the sin that separates you from a holy God? I got one more Charles Spurgeon quote for you. You guys know I like Charles Spurgeon, but he said this, there is a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Okay, there's a, there's a connection between the doctrine of God saves through faith, by grace alone, all these things. There's a connection between the doctrine of the Bible and the way that we weep and mourn and grieve over our sin. Look what he says, grace is dear to those who have grown deeply because they see what grievous sinners they are. It's a recognition of our sin that separates us from God, that gives us a love for his grace, a love for his mercy. When was the last time you wept over your sin? Look at the rest of verse nine. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, as James is writing to these people, uh, they were no longer taking their sin seriously. Their sin had become trivial or their prayers for forgiveness had become routine or flippant. May it not be so of us. Uh, may we grieve over our sin as if it were the first offense we've ever made. May we not grow calloused to the tendency to go our own way. May we not dismiss the sin of selfish gain as anything less than spiritual fornication, as James called it earlier in this passage. If we're going to draw near to God, if we're going to commune with him and resist the devil and approach him, we must approach him in humble repentance. And I believe what James is trying to say to us today is that repentance has to hurt. That repentance is meant to hurt sometimes. That it's not something we should be flippant about. That it's not something that we should be so routine over, that we should be callous to. Lord, give us the grace to see our sin for what it is. But as human beings, we try to get out of the hot seat, right? Like we don't wanna be in the hot seat. We don't, we don't want the pressure to be on us. And so 
And when it comes to our sin, we try to start squirming whenever the pressure's on. We want to get out from underneath the pressure that comes. Uh, I'll deal with that later. Um, I'll, I, you know, I'll just compartmentalize it when it comes up. I'll deal with it, but I'll, for the most part, try to be a good Christian. Or, man, I'll come to w- church week after week after week after week, and I'll put a facade on, and uh, no one will know really what's going on in my life or really what I'm hiding We try to get out from under the pressure that God provides, the conviction that the Holy Spirit can bring to us. We often try to remove ourselves from the only place that we will find real freedom, and that's on our face before a holy God. Can you read verse 10 with me? James writes, humble yourselves, before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In Psalm 145, uh, it says that God raises up all of those who are bowed down. That's kind of contrary to the way we as human beings think, right? We're constantly thinking, how can I climb the ladder? How can I position myself better? How can I accomplish this? How can I become greater? How can I move forward, move up? And yet God says the best way for you to have real success, for you to have real life is to lower yourself, not lift yourself. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. Can I ask you to bow your heads here this morning? Some of you, um, maybe you're feeling a sense that the Holy Spirit wants you to get on your knees, get on your face right where you're at. Um, Don't say no to the Holy Spirit. I've had people say, man, sometimes I feel like God wants me to get on my knees and I just don't know if it's okay. If the Lord's prompting you to get on your knees or to come forward and just pray at the front of the altar, um, please come and do that. Have the freedom to do that. Have the freedom to say yes to the Spirit of God this morning. Uh, But right there in your seat, I want to talk to three kinds of people. I want to talk to friends of God who are here today. None of us have arrived, and while God has forgiven you and called you his child, uh, we can never humble ourselves too much. So my encouragement to you right there in your seat is that you would open your heart to the Lord right now. See the God grieving tendencies that separate you from his holiness. Humble yourself before the Lord. Some of you today uh, are here and you're friends of God who have become calloused to the seriousness of your sin. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you wept over your sin? When was the last time that you uh, wept over the sin of your heart? The sin that comes out when things don't go your way or the sin that manifests itself in outward anger or speech that tears down or attitudes that disrespect authority. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Don't avoid those sins. Don't avoid the hot seat. Don't avoid the pressure. Get low 
humble yourself and he will exalt you. There's pastors even at the front that you can come and talk to, confess things to, ask them to pray for you and give you, help you uh, get on the right track. And then finally, I wanna talk to those here today who are enemies of God, who are just checking church out. Uh, Maybe you're trying to hide something. Uh, Some of you have yet to repent of your sins at all. Some of you are holding so tightly to the world, wanting God to be a magic genie that grants you everything you could ever ask for rather than surrender to his lordship, uh, rather than admit your need for a savior. Maybe you're too proud to admit your need for help here today. So instead of coming to the Lord, you're fighting and quarreling and positioning, but you're always coming up short or dissatisfied. Let me encourage you with the truth that you've already heard. God longs to have communion with you. God longs to be in a relationship with you today. You can search and search and search this world high and low, but without Jesus Christ, you have nothing. Humble yourself and he will lift you up right there in your seat with your head bowed. Just seek the Lord in prayer as we sing this familiar prayer together. Your loving kindness leads me to repentance. So thankful that it's His kindness that leads us. Come on. Lord, that's your kindness his anger, it's not his wrath, it's his kindness that leads us on. Come on. Lord, that's your kindness. That's our prayer. Let it lead me to repentance. Let it be true today. Lord, that's your kindness. Let it lead me to Father God, that is the prayer of our heart here in this place as we've gathered and as we go. Lord, that your kindness would lead us to repentance. God, we admit our need for you. Lord, we admit that we are selfish human beings who more often than not think of ourselves, think of our own selfish gain, try to get what we want by our own omission, by our own power, by our own strength. And Lord, this morning we confess those things to you and we humbly ask forgiveness of those things. But Lord, we thank you that you give more grace. God, we thank you that you long to communicate with us, that you have given us this gift of prayer where, God, we can have communion with the living God. May we not take it for granted. Lord, may it not become flippant in our hearts. May it not become so routine that we forget to stop and recognize how glorious and how holy and how other you truly are. And Lord, in recognizing your majesty, may we humbly approach you knowing that you'll draw near to us. May we humbly come and repent. God, show us, teach us again about the weight of our sin. 
things that separate us from you, a holy God. Lord, do work on us even as we leave today. Uncover the hidden sins of our heart. Uncover the sins of our hands. Lord, make us holy as you are holy. And certainly we have not arrived. So God, we confess that we need you in this place and we worship you in this place and we give you the glory and honor and praise that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name we pray.